I'm Robin Anler of IBS Intelligence, and you're listening to the IBS iViews podcast. With me, Mac Thompson, founder and president of White Clay. White Clay is a fintech which specializes in making user-friendly experiences to help bankers increase profitability, which is always a good thing if you're a banker, I guess. We're talking today about data, finding meaning in bank data. I think the first thing I have to say about bank data, Mac, is the fact that banks have got a lot of it, but they don't always know what they've got. Uh, they tremendous amounts, terabytes and terabytes of data, and it is, it is often over, overwhelming and not very clean. Well, the first thing you've got to do then is clean it up. How do you do that? A lot of people have tried to clean up data as an event, some sort of project. We're going to clean our data. And in reality, it's more of a journey. And it's got to be a part of your core DNA, what you do. All these modern technologies we're developing between AI, intelligence, machine learning, all of these things are built upon data. But if that data isn't clean, they're not particularly as useful as they could be. So what you do is, I believe, you start with the the underlying account and transaction level data, which is not all that exciting, But you build processes inside of your bank to clean it on a weekly basis, daily if you like. But it is something that is an ongoing, should be an ongoing part of what you do. Uh, Very few banks do this. But you start with the account and the transaction data. Then you also curate how you integrate and aggregate that information. So how you put together a client, how you put together the clients that belong to a banker, how you look at products. These are also things that are done as projects and aren't very well maintained, but without them, you can't really do core things like, say, how many clients do I have? And if you can't define how many clients you have, it's really hard to run AI algorithms to determine all kinds of things about them because you don't have them defined. That's a stunning claim that banks don't even, some banks don't even know how many clients they've got. It's a a favorite board question of mine is, um, can you tell me how many clients you have? Can you give me within 100,000? And I usually don't even get a guess. One of the reasons I guess banks haven't paid attention to data before is because they've been product driven. They don't need to have data to be product driven. But of course, that is changing. Well, a lot of banks from like a board level are definitely driven off of regulatory financials. And they'll know those numbers cold. But they don't think of how those regulatory financials and those, you know, the P&Ls translates into customers and clients. And that's one of the disconnects because one's and the aggregate for the shareholder, which is extremely important. But how you optimize for the shareholder is really around how well are you able to deliver value to your clients and evolve with them. And that is the opportunity in banking. You know, everyone wants to be a relationship bank. We take care of our relationships But in reality, we're transitioning from being transaction-oriented. How do we do a new loan? How do we open a new account? How do we perform this purchase? Which are all extremely important operational things which need to be done securely, accurately, and quickly. But behind all of this is a person, and the person is trying to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish in their lives. And really, the point of banking is to help enable those people succeed. And I think that that is one of, the, one of the areas banks can have an opportunity to evolve. We've been very product-oriented, very transaction-oriented, but we can become relationship-oriented. But the point about being relationship-oriented 
is that it presents opportunities to a bank to market its products successfully or more successfully than just sending out a mail shop saying, hey, take out a loan. Oh, yeah. But you need to, uh, back to data, back to what a bank's, back to meaning. What is it as a bank? What is it you're trying to do? Is a corporation usually, sometimes some of them are privately owned. You're trying to, you're trying to deliver great, awesome value for your shareholders. And that's the goal of every, not every business you have. But in order to do that in banking particularly, you need to take care of your customers. You need to make sure that they're succeeding. And this is the opportunity in banking. Uh, we look at profitability data. And one of the reasons we look at profitability data is to make sure that on a client account level, are we delivering the appropriate value to the shareholder? But when you're looking at that data, what you really should be asking is, is the shareholder winning with this client and is the client winning from the value they're receiving from this relationship? Because if both the shareholder and the client win, your bank's going to be very successful. If either party is losing, it's not going to be good for you in the long run. One of the problems maybe perhaps is that that's been looked on in the past as an either or. Either the shareholder wins or the customers win. It has to be and, and I'll throw a third and in. You got to bring humanity to this digitization of banking we're doing. So it's how do you help the customer succeed? How do you deliver awesome shareholder value and deliver humanity? Because money is money is extremely personal to people. It's not a just a, a transaction to them. It is their lives. A mortgage is not just a financial transaction between a buyer and seller being you know, being capitalized by a bank to be paid back over time. It is a life transformational event. How you buy your car, how you pay for your groceries, how you live your lives and the things you're trying to do. Money is emotional and people are deeply emotionally connected to how that this is impacting their lives. And it's one of the things I think that as we've been going through the last 20 years of increasing digitization, we're kind of losing track of. If you go back 20, 30 years, relationship banking was more a necessity because you didn't have all the information tools. You had to have it based upon relationships. That's why banks were, there are tens of, in the US, there are tens of thousands of more of them. And now we've consolidated. And part of that has gotten rid of those person-to-person things. So how do we, how do we enable our new models to work in a similar, in similar in a kind of experientially, you know, in the way it used to, that you had relationship banking, but now with all these improved tools and knowledge that we may have. Which brings us back to the fact that the banks probably have the data to be able to do that. So let's get into the nitty gritty of actually how they can. Well, first, work on cleaning your data. It should be something every bank doesn't have a project on, but it's part of a team that they cross-functional that they're working on that. It's an ongoing activity, and we help clients do that. And one of the things we provide is we actually help curate the data for them. So we'll go through every week, and we'll go through all the transactions, all the accounts and everything, and start identifying things where data may become misaligned, and then provide that back to be corrected. So you got to start with clean data. The other thing is, can you put together a holistic view of your client? And this is a challenge in banks. Banks have been built for what we were talking about before, by products. So they're very siloed. So the credit card division, the commercial division, the business banking division, the wealth division, the retail division, all of these places have siloed information, in, you know, depending upon the size of your bank in five, 10, 20 different places. And we don't put it together very well. So when I'm talking to a large bank about my business relationship, they may not understand completely my personal relationship. 
banks at varying levels have been able to do that. With some of the very largest, say, in the U.S. or in the world, can do that. Many of the ones you would think would do that can't. You got to be able to look at your client to see what's going on with them. One of the most important reasons to do that is because of all this data, they, we have every transaction, we have all their account behavior, we know how they're interacting with us. They are telling us on a daily basis in great detail how they derive value from our relationship. And what we're not doing is listening to that and trying to figure out how do I behaviorally put them, segment them and put them into, into uh, groups where I can then begin to make sure I'm delivering the value the way that they define it for themselves through their behavior and deliver that to them. So I can make sure back to my original thing, they're getting great value and people derive value in different ways. We're not all the same. And that's wonderful. If you get to a situation where the customer is deriving value, how do you sell that to the bank and to the shareholder to say, you can derive value from this as well? Well, what we found, so we've done behavioral segmentation for about 20 years. You can make an optimal shareholder experience from any of those segments. You just have to optimize for them. So those two things, while seemingly, and maybe historically, seem at odds, they are not. You can build great shareholder value while building great client value. You just need to understand what the client's deriving value for them and how do you align your bank to optimally deliver that value, but also deliver value for your shareholder. What's the answer? It depends by segment. But some people derive, I, I give you an example. I, I, I used to work at a very large bank. And this was a strange segment to me because I'm not one of these people. But these people are real and they exist. And there used to be a, a segment called, I called them ATM junkies. And ATM junkies are people on average use an ATM somewhere between two and three times a day. And you would think that this is insane. But to them, it was a way, we actually went out and did focus groups and talked to them and figured out why. They derive value from this relationship and that's how they manage their money. They manage their money by getting cash on a limited basis. And this group's diminishing now because of the, the ever-increasing digitization of transacting, especially post-COVID. But I give this use this example because it's kind of older. That's how they manage their money. And that's how they wanted to live their lives. Now, we could have looked at that as a, oh my gosh, these people are driving crazy expenses. And we don't want crazy expenses. We want to eliminate these people because they're driving up our ATM network. But if you look at the economics of how ATM networks work, it's, a, it's, on, a, it's on a network curve again. So you've already got this fixed cost. The incremental costs themselves aren't that high, but the value they derive from it is very high. It's also very sticky. So what you, one of the things you're trading off in all of this is if you can align where they're getting value and what you're delivering, you're model where you have to go acquire a quarter to a third of your clients every year just to replace the churn, you don't have to do that because your attrition rates are much lower once you align them. And once they know that you can deliver what they're looking for and they don't have to keep finding it every other year. It's just an example of sometimes we just need to listen to what the customer's telling us, even if it's in the data. If you have competitors who are understanding their clients well, using all this data to understand them well and deliver value to them well, better than you are, more accurately than you are, eventually you're going to get adversely selected against because you won't be doing that. And so the, part, the clients that are going to be sticky, we're going to stick with them. And the clients who aren't going to be as sticky are going to be with you. And eventually that business model probably won't work in the long run because your cost of acquisition will keep increasing and it will eventually get you. The industry as a whole is going to turn more into relationship banking 
than transactionatory. And I think that's one of the issues in general fintechs are going to run into an issue with. And when I say fintechs, I'm not talking so, so much the service providers to banks as the fintechs that are trying to build solutions for clients. They're picking up a sliver of a value proposition of a, of a relationship and trying to optimize that individual element. And I don't know if people want to have their, their financial lives cut into 100 separate relationships and handled that way. That might be a lot of management on, on behalf of them. I think the ability for someone, a trusted advisor, a trusted relationship, to be able to manage that and be a partner with them as they grow is a much better value proposition than let me take care of this one ability to transact in this particular way. And I've got 50 of those I need to manage as a human. Simplicity and ability to deliver, give me value in a way that I want usually wins. Mike Thompson, founder and president of White Clay, thank you very much.